This is the Commission Church Online. Welcome to our podcast. We want to be a church who brings heaven on earth through the word of God and the love of Christ. I pray this week's message blesses you. Amen. We are in a series in the book of Thessalonians. Are you excited for the series? Uh, last week we began part one of our Upside Down series, uh, and we're continuing that series going into week two. Uh, actually, for two weeks, uh, we've been in it for three weeks. For two weeks, I was kind of giving an introduction to the series and uh, talking about why we're calling the series Upside Down. So if you're super confused as to why we're calling the series Upside Down, you probably want to rewind and go back two weeks. You can go to our YouTube page and, and check out the reason from Acts chapter 17 as to why we're calling this series Upside Down. Uh, I'll give you a small gist of it. It's essentially because when Paul and Timothy and Silas brought the gospel to uh, Thessalonica, the city called Thessalonica in Greece, uh, people became so aroused, they were upset, they were angry because of what they've heard and what happened in the past. They heard about what happened in Corinth. They, have, they heard about what happened in Philippi. And they were really upset that people were coming to the grace. They were being baptized. They were being saved in the Holy Ghost. And uh, they, were, they, they were really upset about that. And they, there was this huge uproar that happened. A mob arose. And the statement they make is that these people who turned the world upside down has come to our city. It upsets the enemy that a group of passionate Christians always stick to the great commission, which is go ye therefore and spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are doing what Christ is, we're doing what Christ has asked us to do in carrying out the great commission, trust me when I tell you this, the devil ain't gonna like it. All right, and that's, that, that's, that's pretty sad that the enemy's not gonna like it, but you know what, let's embrace it because we know that we're doing something right. So that's why we're calling it upside down because the, Paul and Timothy and Silas have brought the gospel to Thessalonica and we pick up at verse number four where we left off last week. We, we discussed verse one to four, but I'll pick up, pick up from verse four. We'll give you a little bit of background as to what we're talking about. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Can we say a word of prayer? Father God, would you speak to us this morning? Uh, Father, I, I, I can't do this alone, God. Would you give me the words? Would you give me the ability? Would you give me the, uh, the strength to take this word and dissect this word and to be able to, to, to give this word to the people? And I pray, God, that this word will do what it has to do with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. I pray, Lord, that this word will go into the hearts of people, into the ears of people, and I pray, God, that they will accept this word and they will run with this word. So we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 In verse number four, now, just a backdrop for people that don't know how we teach here at, at Commission. Uh, we love teaching from the Word. We're a Bible-based, Spirit-filled church. And what that means is we love worshiping God in spirit. And right after that, we come along and we teach the Word of God. And uh, we, we usually go by, book by book. And we studied the book of Philippians last year. And then we went to the book of James. And right now, we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and, and, and in verse number 4, the Bible essentially says this, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because, why has he chosen you? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and the Holy Spirit is what the Bible is saying, right? With full conviction. Paul says, man, I know God chose you, and you're a part of the family. And the question arises, how does he know this? That's the question. How does he know this? He says, because we know the power of the gospel. Christians, we need to understand something. We have the most powerful tool in our hands. We are tasked as Christians to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and share it to the best of our ability to the world uh, that we know, that God has placed us in. You and I have the responsibility to turn the world upside down. We have the responsibility to go into the world, share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let them know the life-transforming power of this gospel. Paul was sure in his heart that all he had to do was preach the gospel message 
All he had to do was proclaim the gospel message and the gospel message was so potent and so powerful that it had the ability to change lives. He says, because of our gospel, the gospel in one word, I remember when I was, I think it was eight years old and I was sitting in, I went to a Christian school and I was sitting in morning assembly with my Bible in my hymn book and the, pre, the, 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 the teacher that was sharing the message on that day came up on the stage that day and said, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to the earth to save you from all your sins and that was the first time I understood the word gospel. Because the gospel, in two words, literally means the good news. The message came to you. He says the message showed up. The gospel was preached, is what the Bible says. What he was essentially saying was that the hero of God's story died for your sins and my sins. Not just the word, not not just that it came in word, but it also came in power. Now here's what I want us to understand. He's looking at the, syn- the people in the synagogue. The Bible says that Paul was there for three weeks uh, speaking to people and preaching and teaching to the people in the synagogue. And now when he's li- writing this letter, encouraging them, he's looking at them and saying, man, I know that this is stuff that you already knew. When we went through the scrolls, scrolls and every time the synagogue happened and, and the person would get up and read the scroll and, and read the word, it was all written over there already about the coming Messiah and the coming Jesus and Jesus is coming soon and blah, 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 blah. We knew this in theory. But the Holy Spirit did a work where he took the theory and converted that into a life-transforming message. Here's the thing, guys. We all are blessed with the word of God. We all are blessed in theory. But in order for this to do something in our lives, you and I have to go to that, that, that place where we can look at God and say, God, would you allow the Holy Spirit to do a work within us? Because it is the Holy Spirit that can only convict. It is the Holy Spirit that can only transform and change us. Just not by word, but by power. There's something that the power of the Holy Spirit does in our lives. It changes us. I still remember, I was talking about when I was a kid, I, I still remember when I was a kid, it was in church that this happened, I still remember till this day. Uh, you know, my dad would always tell me, never put your finger into an electrical outlet. Don't we always tell our kids that? Uh, we preemptively, what do we do? We go and put the childproof stuff on our, on our sockets, right? Just so that the kids don't do it because we know the kids are going to do it. My, my dad would repeatedly tell me, don't do it. And, you know, it's crazy. We, we want to do what we're told not to do. I still remember the day that I tried, uh, this was in church when he wasn't watching, I tried putting my finger in and it wouldn't go in, so I was like, what's the next best thing? How can I explore this thing? And I, and I found a paper clip lying around, and I still remember the day I took that paper clip, stretched it out, and I put it in there. Oh, let me tell you, 240 volts of electricity, not 110, 240 volts of electricity going through my hand, and I threw that thing, and that was the first and the last time I ever done, did something stupid like that. But here's the thing, right? In theory is one, and, 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 and to take that and do it is you experience the power, <laughs> you know? But when dad told me, hey, don't do that, that's really not good for you, I'm like, oh, how bad can it be, right? And then I'm like, okay, let the power come in, and when the power comes in, I realize it's different. In theory, it's different, right? And, 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 in, and in, in reality, is something different. The moment I put that in, I experienced this power inside of me. Now, I'm talking about a different kind of power, but, but it took the theory and it made it make sense. Am I talking to somebody? That's what power can do. That's what the Holy Spirit does to your and my heart and your and my ear. Every time we hear the word of God, when we allow the Holy Spirit to talk to us, to communicate to us, to speak to our hearts, the Holy Spirit can take the theory and the words that are being preached and it can allow some work to happen in your hearts. Life transforming, life changing. And that's what he's saying. Guys, this made sense to y'all. It changed your lives. It transformed your complete thinking. You know why? You took the theory. You took everything that you've learned and you actually allowed the Holy Spirit to do a work inside of you. Unless and until the Holy Spirit does a work inside of the believer, the believer will always remain unchanged. The reason that we have so many believers that come into church, listen to a message and walk out unchanged is because they do not position themselves in a place of receptiveness. There are some that will hear and some that will ignore. But Paul is sure that the gospel chose them because of their receptiveness to the gospel. 
A receptive heart, I want you to listen to this, write this down if you can. A receptive heart is the breeding ground for conviction and conversion. A receptive heart is a place where God can move, God can change, God can transform. If you and I come into the presence of God and listen to the word of God with a notion that it cannot do anything and we know it all, it cannot do anything at all to us because Paul was waging war with some religious people. You heard the band lead worship here. It says, tear down the the walls of my religion. Sometimes as Christians, we have the walls of religion so high that we know it all or, or we've read it all or we heard it all. And God says, sometimes your heart has to be so soft and so receptive to the point where you might know it all. You might be the Jewish hierarchy. You might be right on top. You might be going to the synagogue every Saturday. But man, the moment you humbled yourself and your heart was open to allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you, that theory started to take form. The power of the Holy Spirit started allowing it to make sense. And once it started making sense, lives were changed. Lives were transformed. People were getting baptized the church was growing the holy spirit has power church it's powerful the latter part of verse number five and i'm going to verse number six and seven the bible says this you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the holy spirit Verse 7 says this, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Bible says first you were observers, then you were imitators. He basically says this, you know what kind of men we proved to be? You watched us. Church, do you know that people are watching you as Christians? You and I, we're watched every single day. That's spooky. People looking at us. Weird. No, we are. People want to know what kind of lives y'all live. If this profession of faith is just on Facebook, it's just on Sunday mornings, it's just something that we talk about, or is it something that we actually live? People are watching us on a regular basis. Paul says, man, from the time I arrived, I know that people were watching me. I had to make sure that I set the best example ever. He says, I wanted to be an imitator of God's love. You and I are called to be the same way. We're called to be imitators with, with, you know, with, with, with this potential and, and knowing that God can change you inside out. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, is my life an example yet? Don't we say that to kids all the time? Be an example. When you go to school, let everyone know that you're a Christian, right? Live a Christian life. My dad would always say that. Seek ye first the kingdom of the Lord. Remember that you're a Christian. Remember that you're a believer. I started preaching really young, so I, one, I was one level above that. Remember you're a preacher, that's what I would get. It wasn't, I remember you're a child of God anymore. After the child of God at 13, I was like, you were a preacher. I was like, okay, here we go. Thank you. So much pressure. But we say that. I look at Michaela all the time. I have two daughters. One is a four-year-old and one is a naughty two-year-old. And the two-year-old does want to do everything that the four-year-old does. She forgets that she's smaller in size and she's chunkier, and she wants to run the same way the, the, the four-year-old runs. She wants to do the same things the four... Am, am I talking to somebody here? She wants to do everything because they learn, and I always have to remind Mickey. Mickey's what we call her at home. I have to remind Mickey. I said, Mickey, your, your sister's watching you, and I know how much a pressure that adds to her, and she's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta put on this, you know, this, this best attitude and this nature, and I see her every single time I remind her. She's watching you. She's learning from you. Okay, I gotta, I gotta be better. I gotta, I gotta be a good big sister that, that pressures on her. We always put that on our kids, right? You know, once upon a time, Paul was an instrument of affliction to those who were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. When people were going around proclaiming the gospel, he was the one that afflicted people, inflicted people with pain and persecution. But no more. He's he's standing in a place when when, when Jesus opened his eyes on the road to Damascus, right? In Acts chapter 9, Paul went from being this great persecutor of the church to being one that was greatly persecuted by people around him. Here's a man that has seen it all, right? He was mocked, he was beaten, he was rejected, and ultimately he would be put to death. Here's a man, this, this man that was filled with passion, right? And these Thess- Thessalonians are experiencing that same kind of persecution and Paul is kind of encouraging them. The gospel came to them and they received it with gladness but what that would mean is that it would meant that, it meant that now they would be the ones that would have to go through that persecution. They would be the ones that would have to be hated. 
I don't know how many of y'all have been there before, but I don't know if you've been hated for your faith. I don't know how many of y'all have been hated for what you stand for and believe in. I know just this week, we were just talking about this yesterday, how uh, Oral Roberts University making it to the top 16 were persecuted for what they believed in and they stood in as a basketball team or as a university and, 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 and the cancel culture as it is called on a boycott of the, of, of the whole university or told them to take them out of the, the final 16. Why? Because they stood for what they believed in and they were not going to apologize for it. Persecution is not just something that happened back in the day, but I'm asking each one of us, what kind of persecution do we face in different places in our life? Do we stand strong in the middle of all this persecution? We're not told exactly what they had to endure, right? You can imagine that, that, that it greatly affected their whole life, right? Some of them were businessmen. It would have been to that place where people were told not to give them their business, it would be to a place where they were not granted promotions. It would be to a place where they would show up to the marketplace and they would say, go to the back of the line. You can't be in the front of the line. You have to understand this. It was not, it was not a, okay, let's beat you to death. But in every single move that they made, they were always given second treatment and, and, and not treated equally as others. Why? Because they made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. We have a family like that in our church. They were shunned by their own family because they got baptized. They were from a very traditional Christian background. And because they accepted Jesus and they got baptized, their whole family shunned them. And they put them out. I'm not going to say names, but they're probably watching online and they know who they are. But man, they were, they, they, they were shunned for their faith because they accepted Jesus Christ. We have that in and around us every single day. Maybe one of y'all are like that. You've probably had to endure that. family members that they had back in the day that did not come to Christ might have shunned them too. They might have treated them unfairly in the marketplace, like I said. They, the pressure from various authorities may have become very intense. And, and like the Bible says, we know that the riot was formed and people actually came and arrested Jason and his whole family and put him in jail because of the fact that, that Paul was right there preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. What Paul is so encouraged by and is thanking the Lord for is that these Thessalonians came to Christ and held firm in their faith, church. Even in the midst of such affliction, they held on strong. How do you know that God chose you? Paul is like, I am sure, I am positive that God chose you and you are God's chosen and you are his church and you are his body because the gospel found you is what Paul is saying. How do you know that the gospel landed in your heart with conviction? Because you hold on to it even though life gets hard and affliction strikes. Even, you, even when you're going through an uncertain season, you're clinging on to God. That's when I know that you and I are true Christians. The, mo the moment of reality is when you and I are put in the furnace. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the furnace, those are the testing times where God's like, man, what is Christianity? What is following God if it's not tested from time to time? Haven't you been through periods of testing in your life and you're like, God, I'm a Christian. Why is this happening to me? And God's like, it's happening to you because you're a Christian, because I need to test you. This professing of faith, I trust in you, Jesus. Lord, you are my everything. I put my faith in Jesus, the anchor of my... And God's like, let me test that out. You just sang that on Sunday. I'm talking to somebody, and you go to work, and you're like persecuted by a boss, and you're like, God, why me? Because you sang that on Sunday. I need to test it out. I want to see if that's true or not. I want to see if you really put my, your hope in me. Am I talking to somebody? But we try to run away from that. But the sign of a Christian is that when I go through the furnace, I should still hold on. And that's what Paul is saying. I know that you are God's elect. You're not the, the fake kind of Christian. You're not the labeled Christian that walks around saying, I'm a Christian. Or you have that bumper sticker in the back saying, I love Jesus. But you're like flicking people off on the road and cussing people out, throwing the window down and spitting out of the window. And all, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, we're not labeled Christians. Some of you are like, we don't do that. You'll be surprised. I'm not talking about y'all. I'm not talking about y'all. I'm talking about another church I went to. But you get what I'm saying, right? Paul's like, no, 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 you're, you're, that, that's not who you are. When, 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 when life gets tough and when everything inside of you is telling you to quit and walk out of God, 
And when this is probably not going to be worth it, you are still holding on to hope and you're clinging on to Jesus and you're clinging on to the message. That tells me, Thessalonica, that, that tells me, church, that tells me, Thessalonians, that you are a church that was washed by the blood and I am convinced in my heart that no matter what comes, you will hold on to the hope of the promise of the coming Savior. How many of us can say this is true to you and to me? Paul's not enjoying their suffering. This is what I want to clear up. He's thankful for God's incredible work in them through it. And in the midst of it, he's thankful. He's like, Lord, I want to thank you, God. And notice, this is not an affliction. This affliction was not an evidence of God's lack of love for them. This is what I want to clarify. It's not because God loved them less that they're going through affliction. In fact, it's just the opposite. Because in that verse, in verse number four, the, he addresses them and saying, brothers that are loved by God. That's how he addresses them. He says, brothers that are loved by God. Through this affliction, you showed your mettle. How exotic that is to our thinking at times. Like, I was, I was like, man, that's, that's amazing to think about it that way. What else might be difficult for us to swallow? You know, is that, is that suffering is a tool. Like, that's, that's difficult for me to understand sometimes that God forms suffering as a tool for our sanctification. Like, how would you guess that? How would I tell a new Christian, hey, uh, welcome to the faith. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're a part of the body of Christ. But just disclaimer, you're going to go, you're gonna go through a lot of pain. You're going to go through a lot of torture. That's what Jesus said, right? Jesus never said, hey, you're welcome to come join my group. If you come to us, you get free food. Uh, you're going to get a place to stay. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to guarantee this. No warranties, no guarantees with Jesus. But man, what is Christianity? It's just the opposite. Jesus is like, man, if, if you come to me, be ready to die. Like, like, think about that. Like when we invite people to church, come over, we'd love to come. We, are, we have amazing men's breakfast every month. We have, you know, a young adults group that gets together. Man, young adults have a great time. We do life together. Man, we, we're here for one another. We support one another. Jesus is like, come follow me. People will kill you. Come follow me. People will stone you. Come follow me. People will spit on you. Come follow me. You will be stoned. You will be beheaded. You will be hung upside down from a cross. Oh, thank you, Jesus. This wants me, wants me to come to your church even more. You know what I'm saying? Like, all the time, you, you put on your best stuff forward, and you're like, this is my advertisement for Easter. Come. We're giving you eggs. Jesus is like, uh-uh. Something else happened on Easter. I died. I'm digressing. But, but, but here's, the pro- here, here's the thing, right? Jesus never promises good. And this is what should encourage the Thessalonians and us, that we share in the sufferings of Christ as we suffer for the sake of the gospel. In this, right, we are made more like Jesus. I pray that today, every suffering that we go through, pain that we go through, it makes us more like Jesus. I pray that every pain, every season of trauma, every season that you went through that you thought there's no coming back out of, I pray that God will use that as a crucible where you can say, man, I can identify with the suffering of the cross of Jesus because Jesus says, man, if you follow me, pick up my cross. That's what Jesus says. Pick up my cross. Obedience is what brought suffering to him. You know, when Paul writes in, to Timothy in his second letter, in, in 2 Timothy 3 12, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who live, not just a Christian life, not a namesake Christian life, this is a godly, someone say godly, Christian life. Here's it, you may be persecuted, not probably, maybe we'll take a draw and then one out of the ten may be, no, 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 he says you, someone say will. Look at the person sitting next to you and say Will. We don't like that, right? And trust me, we, we, we may not always be called to endure the kind of affliction that the Thessalonians lived through, but all of us are acquainted with the grief and the misery that accompanies this life that we live in, right? God was using this difficulty in Thessalonica to, to conform to those new believers to the image of his son. And we can trust that God uses all the suffering that you and I endure every single day in, in, in our life to do the same for us, to shape us, to mold us, to make us more like him. And this is where we get to the crux of this message. 
And in verse number eight, the Bible says this. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Like, think of Thessalonica as the epicenter of an earthquake. Right? Think about it like an earthquake. Lisa Richard, you've seen a bunch of earthquakes in Hawaii? Volcanoes erupt in Hawaii, the ground shakes, you don't know what's going to happen the next minute. Think about it, I've been through a few earthquakes myself, and you have those, those rumbles, and as soon as the earthquake hits, the, the, you know, in the epicenter, it just sends rumbles all throughout the city, the, the, it just quakes the entire city, just everybody feels it. The gospel is rumbled from Thessalonica as it sounded forth to these new believers and it was waking people up throughout the region. Everybody started hearing about this gospel. Think about it like an earthquake. It blew up in Thessalonica and suddenly everybody was like, gospel, 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 gospel. Guess how it got there? They didn't have no loudspeaker. They didn't have a worship team. They didn't have an album. They didn't have radio waves. How did the gospel travel People, someone say people. People that were passionate, that said, I want to turn my world upside down. I want to turn my workplace upside down. I want to turn my my school upside down. I want to turn my community, my family upside down. It started traveling. It started working its rounds. People started hearing about it from everywhere. They had taken the gospel to all sorts of places around them. Like, just look at this map real quick. Do you have that map, uh, Lakshmi? Or, let's see. Okay, look at this real quick. You see Macedonia up to the top left. And it had gone to Thessalonica. It had gone to Corinth, to Achaia, to all of those surrounding cities. So here's what happened. Right? When Paul would move from Macedonia and come to, uh, to, from, from, uh, from Thessalonica and he would come to Corinth and Achaia, they would be like, oh, we already heard the gospel. Are you hearing what I'm saying? He's like, you're, everyone's like, you're too late. We've heard about you, but we heard about the gospel before you. This is good stuff. They didn't rely on Paul's witness. They didn't rely on the pastor and the apostle to say, hey, take the gospel. They were like, man, this is life changing. This is life transforming. We need to make sure everybody hears about it. So this is what happens. Paul is in Corinth, which is in Achaia, right? And when he arrives, he finds that people over there has heard about the gospel. They're like, hey, Paul, have you heard about what's going on in Thessalonica? And he's like, uh, yeah, I was just there. They're like, oh man, we heard it's amazing. Revival has broken through. People are getting baptized. Churches are being formed. House churches are blossoming. And he's like, yeah, I know. I was right there. I was, I was like that. And they were like, oh man, we're so excited about what's going on. That's what he's talking about over there. He's like, man, everyone's coming and telling us about what's going on in, in, in our, through our own work. Like consider this. In just a few months, this new church was sending people to proclaim the gospel to cities around them. This brand new church wasn't sitting back and saying, we need to be discipled, we need to go through all the books, we need to understand theology, we need to be equipped. They were like, the only equipping I need is a message that changed my life. Jesus came, died on the cross for my sins, rose up again, he's coming back again, that's it. They did not go to Bible school. They didn't go to four years of theological training. They didn't learn how to counsel people. They we're sitting back and saying, oh, I don't have no theological uh, defense to the faith. Nah, man. Stop with that. These people had only four lines. Jesus, the Savior, according to all that we've been reading all this while in our synagogues, the Messiah was promised. He came. He came in virgin birth as a baby. He died on the cross. Come on, somebody. He, he died for your sin and my sin. And because of that, we are saved by the blood of Jesus and he, was rose, he, was, he rose up again and he is coming. That's it. And that short message started flipping the world upside down. I don't know if we don't, we don't understand this, but I'm telling you, the moment you got, start getting passionate about this message, people start understanding passion. You know what I'm talking about? Like, 
let me share with you my very first bite of a Chick-fil-A spicy chicken sandwich. <laughs> James, you know what I'm talking about, bro. For a very long time, there was a chicken sandwich, which was, whoa, have you had the chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A? Does New Jersey have Chick-fil-A? Okay, y'all had, so y'all had it before y'all moved to Texas. Okay, good. But then there was a Chick-fil-A sandwich, which was amazing, which was God's sandwich. And then came the spicy Chick-fil-A, which was heaven sandwich. Like, like it was, it was, it was amazing God's sandwich, right? It, it just came in. And let me tell you, the first bite I took into it, it blew my mind. I was like, thank you, Chick-fil-A, for caring about brown people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know you're, you're thinking the same stuff that I'm thinking right now. I was thanking God for Chick-fil-A. Not that I didn't thank him before, but I thanked him again and again and again. The Thessalonians, and, and guess what I did after I, I had that? I was walking around. Hey, bro, have you had the spicy Chick-fil-A sandwich? I was so passionate about it. I was telling everybody, and, and people were like, what, they have a spice? Yes, you gotta, let's go right now, let's go. I was like finding reasons to go have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then I'll be like, bro, did you hear about it? Yeah, yeah, we heard about it. And, and man, as, as weeks went by, I was like trying to tell everybody and their mother, and I was like trying to introduce them, and I was like trying to buy it and ship it to India. No, I'm just kidding. But I was like, I was like trying to do everything I could so that everybody would hear about Heaven's Sandwich. The Thessalonians had tasted the goodness of Christ. <laughs> they had experienced the grace of God that delivered them from the wrath to come. They heard a message that transformed them, that changed their lives, that changed their hearts, that, that flipped their entire world upside down. They, it freed them from their old lives and they had given up hope to look forward to. But man, the taste of Jesus brought them into a new family. It gave them a new purpose and a meaning to life. And now like a Chick-fil-A fanatic, they're broadcasting the goodness of Christ everywhere they go. They knew that everyone needed to hear about him and taste them for themselves because they knew the only message that the world needed to hear was you need a savior and the savior has come. He died on the cross. He rose up three days later. He is in heaven preparing a place for you and for me and he is coming back soon. That is all. Purity. Did I get it right? Maybe. I'll soon get it right. That's all. That's it. You know, sometimes it seems like Christians live with a sense of guilt sometimes about witnessing. I don't know if this is you, but this is me. Because they, sometimes they, they, it's this guilt in regard to their lack of sharing the gospel with those around them. Like it's interesting as a pastor when I preach about evangelism, how I see people's heads going into their Bibles. Like, they're like, oh, I don't know about evangelism. I, that's not a subject that I really like. Love my neighbor? Yeah, I could, I could try to do that. Go and, go and serve the community? I could try to do that. But man, sharing the gospel message? That for, for some reason, that's super hard. Yes, yeah, it's, it's super hard. It, and it's interesting how many people like, get so guilty because they haven't been able to do it as much as they wanted to. Not because you don't want to. But man, it's, it's so hard to actually open your mouth and share the gospel with somebody, you know that they need to hear it, but you're afraid, man, what, how can I share it in Walmart? Like, God is telling me to go and share it with this person in aisle number C, and they're looking at mac and cheese, and I'm like, how do I go and tell them about Jesus? Because they're looking, and, but, but obedience is looking at Christ and saying, God, if you tell me to do something, if you're leading me to do this, oh, passion tells you, oh, go and tell them. Go, go let them know that, 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 that Jesus loves them. Am I talking to somebody? At times we can, you know, be so aware of our lack of love for the lost that we would love to disappear in shame. Oh, the guilt, right? But here's the thing. If, if, if guilt was a good motivator, then this message would be irrelevant today. 
I'm going to repeat that. If guilt was a good motivator, this message would be irrelevant because this message is not a guilt message. It's not driving guilt. How dare you not share the message, Kate? You are tasked with sharing. That's not what this message is. This message is rooted in something else. It's not rooted in the, you are obligated to, you are supposed to. No, no, no. This message is, man, if you actually really know who this Jesus is, you will be like Paul that says, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't live with myself is what Paul says. If I don't tell somebody about this life-changing message of Jesus Christ, I pray that we will not be driven by passion, that we will not be driven by guilt, we will be driven by passion. Let us be driven by love, the love for people that may never hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that this series will empower some people to strengthen you, to be able to get the, 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 the boldness, to be able to start doing some witnessing for Jesus. Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to gods from idols to serve the living God, the living and true God. Now let me pause there for a second before we get to that verse. You know, in that verse number eight, you know, there were probably a zillion reasons that our evangelistic efforts will tell us that it's meager, it's small, it's not relevant. But you know, one of those reasons will trump up all the other reasons. And you know what the reason is? The fear of affliction. The fear that maybe we will be ostracized for what we talk about. We fear rejection. We fear losing our comfort or, or friends or it's going out of our comfort zone to do something that we're not used to doing. We're scared that that friend that God is prompting us to share the gospel with will never look at us the same way ever again. What would people think of me at work? Like, think about it. Paul risked everything. He was a prominent businessman, a person that everybody knew around that area. Am I talking to somebody? He was a man of the law, which everybody knew. He risked everything because of his encounter with Jesus. He risked his reputation. He risked his business. Like, think about it. There were people that he probably went to to, to, to sell tents to. He was a tent maker by profession. He would go to sell tents, and they'd be like, Yo, Paul, sorry, we don't want your tents. They would give contracts to somebody else, not, not Paul, because Paul was ostracized for his faith. And that is what might impress us so much about the Thessalonians. They did this in the midst, in spite the infliction that they were suffering because they were going through a similar kind of affliction that Paul probably went through. People were ignoring them, ostracizing them, but in and through it all, they started giving God the glory. Let's close this out with verse number nine, right? It says this, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. They're, they're telling them, hey, guys, check, check this out. This is what's going on in Thessalonica, right? So, and, and, and turn, now, now here's what it is. Why did they report? How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse number 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're going to close with chapter number one here, but I want to listen up real quick. They were telling people about, they were telling Paul about what happened in Thessalonica. He's traveling, he's going around. He's like, hey dude, do you know what happened in Thessalonica? Just like I was telling you earlier, man, it got people talking. But here's the thing, people didn't talk just out of nowhere. Something happened for people to talk. And you know what happened? A culture shift happened. Somebody say culture shift. The reason it was a big uproar was because culture was being transformed and being flipped upside down. What do I mean by that? Thessalonica had this culture, this Greek culture of paganism. It was a culture of idolatry and paganism. And for a place like Greece, for especially Thessalonica, which was a hub of trade and, 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 and booze and partying and all of that stuff, for that place to be the epicenter of a revival, it would not have happened if the culture did not go through revival. What do I mean by that? Right? Uh, the Bible says they turn from idols. For a lot of us in the Western world, this probably might not 
make a lot of sense. Maybe in the Eastern world where, uh, you know, we, we, they look at, we look at pantheistic gods or Hinduism, for example, where people would go in front of idols. And I've seen that a lot growing up as a kid. We have Hindu temples here in the United States as well. And you would probably, if, if I ask you outlandish, if I just say, hey, have you observed anybody going in front of an idol and bowing down to an idol? Your answer would probably, say, would probably be no. You've probably never seen a person going in front. So it might seem irrelevant to you, but the Bible says the fact that they turned from the idols, it was a big deal for them because it was, this was turning their culture upside down. Like This was not a physical idol that we're talking about. We're not talking about, when we talk about Thessalonica, when we talk about the Grecians back in the day, we're not talking about a physical idol. Some of them did, but they prayed. That these, were, these were ideas and understandings. They, you know, they used to serve an idol. They, would, they, they waited upon idols. The, the word serve is essentially where you would, you would see somebody coming and serving you food. It would be a, 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 a servant back in the day where they would come and wait on you. The waiting on somebody, being under somebody, being available to somebody. Looking to that person for guidance is called serving. So they served under that person. This, this wasn't really a statue. There was more to it than that. I want you to listen closely. Greek gods and statues were just a manifestation of the desires of people. Okay? I'm going to break this down. What does that mean? People were looking to an object to deliver themselves from a particular feeling of discomfort. And insecurity that, we're going through, that they were going through or to make them feel good about themselves. If somebody said, hey, I want to look beautiful, I want to be beautiful, they would pray to Aphrodite. Am I talking to somebody? That's what they would look up to. They would say, I want to be beautiful, Aphrodite. If, if someone wanted to be powerful at war, they would worship the god Ares. They would say, this is what we want. This is what we want to happen. And they would worship Ares. If, if they wanted to be successful at sea, they would, wor- they would, they would worship Poseidon. If they wanted to be wise, they would worship Athena. If they wanted to, if, you know, if they wanted to party, if they wanted to, you know, just have a good time, they would worship Bacchus. That's how it was. It was what they were in their time frame, in, in, their, in, their, in their frame of mind, whatever they wanted success at, whatever they wanted to have a good time at, they would pray to that particular God. That was idolatry for them. See, we may not bow down to idols, but we're in a culture that's filled with idols. Things that we serve to provide us with what we need. Some idols may be more socially acceptable than others, but all the idols in our culture have one goal, to keep people captive. I'm closing with this, but I want us to understand this. It, it, it could be wealth. Money will make me feel happy. It will fix what bro- what's broken. That's what people think. This, if I have money, how many of y'all have probably been there? Man, if I had money like he did, maybe I could have this or that, or I would be in a better financial situation. Money has a tendency of doing that. It could be technology. It could be religion. It could be knowledge. It could be fashion. It could be entertainment. We have our different idols today. What about, you know, above all, we worship ourselves, the, self, the selfie generation. It's not merely a photogenic generation that I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about taking the camera and taking selfies. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about us primarily being concerned with the cares and wants and the desires and the pleasure of oneself. Take it on a personal level, right? A man or a woman who, fail, who fails to control his alcohol consumption becomes an alcoholic, A slave to alcohol, a man who cannot keep his gambling habit under his command becomes an addict, a slave to dice. The same applies for drugs or sexuality or money. If you don't exercise control over self, self rules you and you become a slave to self. And that's precisely where we are in Western civilization today. The culture needs Jesus to flip it upside down. Abortion is a classic example. It puts the wants and the desires of self above the the, the one of the unborn and the blameless child. I don't want this child, so I will kill it before it's born. The desire for self. As long, and this is what I want us to hear, church. As long as the enemy can keep you hooked to an object that gives you self-worth, he can keep you away from God. I'm going to repeat that. As long as the enemy can keep you away from something that can give you self-worth. It's an object. It could be a person that looks at you and says, you're better. You are this. You are that. It 
has successfully kept you away from God. From the beginning, this was a scheme. Here's the fruit. Am I talking to somebody? It's always, I am God. I am all you need, Adam and Eve. But here's the fruit. Like, think about that for Take a second and think about that for a second. God, in his majesty, made himself available to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with pure bliss. But all it took for the enemy to seduce man was a fruit. Oh, God said, no, I can't do it. It's a fruit. Look at it. It's amazing how the enemy can use any little, small, minute, insignificant thing. Put it in front of your face, dangle in front of you and make it look seducing. But the human flesh will say okay to it because a moment of, a moment of pleasure is what is more important to man than a lifetime of eternity, of blessing and prosperity. Sometimes we're willing to give that up. Look at Abel and uh, uh, Cain and Abel. Am I talking to somebody? I mean, look at Jacob and Esau. Crazy. I mean, this is, this is something that we had to think about. Jacob's coming back after a hard days of work, hungry. Here you go, some soup. Am I talking to somebody? This, this has to make sense. And I can go throughout the Bible. All the enemy does is it takes God out of the picture by presenting something meager to you and making it look like a million bucks. And we buy into that day after day after day after day. What about sexuality? If a man is driven and commanded by sexuality, he's slave to it. Men and women, I'm talking to everybody today. Porn is a huge problem today in the West. And I think a great deal of people, especially men, are enslaved to this. And this is idolatry because it makes you serve your desires. You become a slave to desire rather than to God. But we don't talk about it in church. Smartphone addiction is on the rise. Many people simply cannot live without their phones. My wife often tells me, put your phone down. Me included. Preaching to the choir here. And just not be just your phones, your online presence. This is quickly becoming an idol for everybody. The problem isn't our phones or social media or other forms of technology. It's the value we place on it that makes it a problem. How many of you, like, when the Wi-Fi is gone, oh, you're hyperventilating. <laughs> Your kids go crazy when the wife. If you have that problem, say amen. amen. Take a second and think why. It's the value we place on it. When our lives revolve around how many likes we get, what our following looks like, Okay, I had somebody come, come up to me the other day, Ronnie, and tell me, Pastor, did you know you could download an app to see how many people unfollowed you on Instagram? I was like, what? I was like, that's a thing? Like, I'm like, wait, who cares about stuff like that? Oh, no, Pastor, we do. Like, if they don't follow us, we will unfollow them. And I'm like, cool beans, bro. Like, that's what makes you happy. But I'm not downloading an app that makes me look at people. Like, you, you get this? Like, think about that for a second. You didn't, un you didn't follow me, so huh? unfollow. Oh, Lord Jesus. It goes back to what I'm saying. When our lives revolve around how many likes we get, what our following looks like, or if we can't just sit in silence for five minutes without refreshing our newsfeed, we might have an idol. And I'm not going to hear an amen. Amen. Trust in Jesus to deliver you. Find your worth in him. When money will go away, your worth will disappear with it. If you put your worth in money, if you put your trust in money, and I can apply this to every single thing. Here's a problem. Can I leave you with this? Many people make a good gift a bad God. I'm going to repeat this, okay, and write it down if you can. Many people make a good gift a bad God. What do I mean by that? A good job becomes an idol or a bad God when you become success-driven. Success when all you care is about the, the money you make, all you care is about you know, the stuff that you get, the promotions that you get, anything to get on the top. If I have to drag other people down, if I have to sting other people in the back, if I have to you know, do stuff that's crazy, that's unchristian, un like I'm going to do it to make sure that I succeed. You made a good gift, a bad God. 
Somebody said good gift? Bad God. A good healthy relationship becomes a bad God when you become so obsessed with the other person. How many of you have been in relationships where you're like, I just want to be with you all the time. I just love you so much. I just want to be, you know, they're just so engrossed in you. And, and you look at some people and they're like, man, you have like super glue like next to you. Like give yourself some space sometimes. Breathe. Your good looks become a bad God when you spend more time in front of the mirror on your looks than you spend in front of God. And I'm not going to hear an amen. You make a, make a gift a God when it falls. When you make a gift a God, it falls. And when, you, when, when it falls, you fall with it because your God was... That gift. Am I talking to somebody? The key is not just to cut down the bad God. It's important to turn to the good one. The only one. The problem is the enemy has introduced so many bad gods to us. Lower G. Lowercase G. He's introduced us to so many bad gods that we have embraced that and forgotten the real God. And God's like, man, that's the biggest tactic that the enemy uses is to turn your attention away from him. Worship team, would you come and join me up on stage? And that's why in verse number 9 and 10, it says this, For they themselves report concerning us how you turn from God, turn to God from the idols. It's so important, not just turning away from idols, but turning, your, turning away from idols has to in turn turn you to God. What was it that overcame their fear of affliction that caused them to be such avid proclaimers of the gospel? Simply put it in one phrase, it's the hope of tomorrow. The gospel always ends with that. He is coming back soon. Jesus will be back soon. Verse number 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Can I, can I share the, the, the good news of the gospel and why you and I do what we do today? It's because Jesus is coming back soon. You know, in John 16 and verse 33, the Bible says this, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, is what the Bible says. Thank you for listening. We love bringing you the word on so many different platforms. We are so thankful for what God is doing in and through us. We'd love for you to subscribe so you don't miss out. And don't forget to share this message if it has blessed you.